Welcome to The Aggregate, hosted by Kinetic Ventures. This is a project based on the learnings from Startup DNA and the founder's journey. On today's episode, we are joined by Blake Smith, founder of Cladwell, as he shares his learnings along the way, including his experience with the top three California accelerator and raising money from the VC who backed Dollar Shave Club. Sure. My name is Blake Smith, and I'm the former founder of Cladwell.com and the current founder and CEO of JumpDocs.com. And so, Blake, really uh, appreciate you being here. I think it'll be awesome for people to hear the story of you know where uh, your journey and then some of the stuff that that you're doing today. But I started to say it at the beginning of this. Um, can you even remember the first time we met? It may be the first time. I remember when we uh, met at the Reds game. Was that when we met? So that's that's one of the memories I have, um, and where David Wilbrand. David Wilbrand uh, had a box, yeah. and so I remember he invited me and Tim Brunk last minute yeah. to go to that Reds game, and we went there because there was free food and free bourbon. Yeah. We were very excited about that. And so, yeah, and I remember meeting you there. Mm-hmm. Have you kept up with Tim? Um, I have, yeah. I mean, we talk, not super often, but like we'll text back and forth yeah. you know, once a month or something. So how long was it um, after that? Had you already started your first company, or what was what was going on in your life at that time? Uh, we were we had already started Cladwell. We were actually at that point about to go out to five hundred startups. We were moving out to Silicon Valley, I think, in like two months from that. Um, which makes me think I think we had already met before that at some point because you invested very shortly after that baseball game, and I think that you had already I'd already filled out the kinetic application and been rejected first round before that. I remember that. And so I think I, I thought it was a very low stakes meeting you because I figured I'd already been rejected. So now uh, we'll just talk about whatever. So we talked about fatherhood. I remember talking about kids and stuff. Yeah. And I think that that'll, that'll be good about our relationship today. I remember that. I, I feel like, um, you were always, you were always so gracious with your time. And so you were kind of like, I don't have a better word, but, uh, beta tester or a guinea pig on some of these crazy ideas that I had. And I don't think the system worked very well because it rejected you once or twice, but then we got the system right. And, uh, and maybe it was the behavioral profiling. Um, but I, I think actually we got rejected based on our growth rate yeah, okay. at the time. Yeah. And I think that, that we were valuation heavy at the time. Yes. And I think that that maybe even was an accurate time because we really only started taking off maybe three or four months before we saw each other at the baseball game. That was when Cladwell finally started to pop because we switched from focusing on men to focusing on women. Yeah. So then we invested with you and then you run off to 500 startups. And I mean, not everybody from this part of the country gets to do that and spend that much time with California entrepreneurs and VCs. And what was that like for you? I mean, it's great. I I loved it. I felt like Littlefoot in the land before time when he finally gets to the Great Valley and it's like, oh my goodness, there's all these other Littlefoot, same breed of dinosaur around here. I'm like, oh, these are my people, like being in Silicon Valley. And we moved out there. So we had four kids at the time, three kids, and then got pregnant with our fourth while we were there. And so we moved out there for six months and just kind of became Bay Area folk. And we loved it. And I had a great time. I made some lifelong friends through the process and kind of absorbed a lot of the culture. Um, and so... I highly recommend for anybody, if you can get to a top three accelerator, do it 100% just for the relationships. I want to unpack a couple of things there, but one thing interesting since you brought it up, and this may blow your mind, it may not, 
But Blake, if I've done seven podcasts, if you're the seventh, six of you were getting pregnant or having a child during the startup journey. Hmm. Now, so I, you know, if you, if you, I mean, should we say if, if you want to grow a family, start a startup, do you think that's, do you think that's a thing or is this just total coincidence? No, I I think they're very related. And the question is, are you open to growth? And if you're open to growth, then it's like, yeah, absolutely. Like in across all, all areas. And I think it's, uh, personally, I, I feel like there are two things that have a direct map into growing you as a person, like fatherhood and entrepreneurship have a great way of revealing your weaknesses right up in front of your face. And so I think they're, they're kind of two tools that serve the same purpose, which is uh, growing us from boys to becoming men. So another thing I wanted to unpack, cause you said it was if you can get into a top three accelerator, I highly recommend you do it, but I'm guessing then the flip is true as if it, you know, what's how different do you think the path is between the, the top, the, gold or platinum standard uh and just say any other accelerator yeah this is a huge deal uh so first off if you can get to a top three accelerator so y combinator launchpad uh 500 startups maybe tech stars if you can get in one of those four do it um if you get rejected by all four then you should either not do an accelerator or go to the number one accelerator in your specific vertical um so you could be like if you're in retail you're going to go to like the retail accelerator i think it's in minneapolis Target. Um, target. Yeah. So you, you kind of need to either do the number one in your vertical or top three overall. Personally, I think that everything else is a waste of time and equity. But startups are going to them. I mean, so what's the, is the draw money or community or why are there, I mean, the explosive growth and I think this is a fascinating topic. So it's not good for the companies. And having coached a lot of companies coming out of B level accelerators, it's not good for the companies. Um, it's really easy to start an accelerator, right? You, I mean, sometimes you don't even have to raise a fund, you know, <laughs> like, and so it's, it's a pretty low barrier to entry to get in and to feel important and have a certain amount of status in your community. Um, and so I think that a lot of people are just starting these accelerators, but if you look at the actual numbers, the vast majority of successes come out of the top accelerators and not a lot comes out of the others. And then people start stringing together accelerators, which is, I'd say a pretty negative signal for investors. I agree with you. I remember when you were coming back from 500 startups and I mean, I feel like we had half a dozen meetings or just strategy sessions or, or pick your brain. Um, I think I was learning as much from you uh, that, you know, I ever could provide to you, but what were some of those things that you learned about your company and yourself that you didn't know when, before you went out to California? Number one thing is culture. It's just that there, those places have, enough of a concentration of successful founders running them that you kind of absorb just the ethos of the startup world. And you kind of become a part of that community as opposed to, I think a lot of these other accelerators are starting, they're starting accelerators outside of the center of the culture. And so there's still outsiders for outsiders and you want to be actually on the inside. Um, so I think the biggest thing is culture and behavior. And then there's a lot of tactics around specifically growth and fundraising, which are kind of the two expertise for 500 startups. I think product is stronger at Techstars, is my understanding. Um, but I think growth and fundraising, 500 startups really trains you hard on that. So you came back, you had all this knowledge, um, both personal growth, new networks, and boom, Cladwell goes to $10 million. Not quite. Not quite. Uh, we did raise money, so <laughs> there's something. Uh, we raised $2 bucks coming out of 500 from uh, investors in that area, as well as Queen City Angels kind of re-upped as well. 
Um, so we had cash in the bank really for the first time ever. Um, we've been alive for four years, but never had more than $300,000 in the bank. And so we were always kind of like just looking to raise for the next just to stay alive. So we had a, a legitimate 18 months of runway coming out of there. And that was like the real shot. And I'd say we hired up people that were necessary. We also hired up some people that were not necessary. And I'd say that was probably an error. Um, didn't realize even free help had a lot of cost to the organization. And so I, I think that was a mistake that we made. Um, but we, we replatformed, relaunched a new app, got some decent traction on that app, um, fumbled in terms of that transition from the replatform where we lost a significant amount of revenue during that transition and just didn't really pay attention to the details of how that was going to go. Um, and that cost us for sure. Um, but I'd say kind of went to a spot where we kind of topped out a little under $2 million a year in revenue and couldn't really break through that. Um, I think in some ways because we saturated the market of people that were willing to pay us um, a monthly fee for fashion help. Um, so we had kind of a crossroads that we were at. Um, well, first of all, we kept on trying to rework the model, rework the system. Like, you know, can we charge a different amount, change the paywall? And we ended up getting investment from Science Incorporated as well as got incubated by Science Incorporated out in Santa Monica, who backed Dollar Shave Club, MeUndies, a bunch of different folks. So we got all this help from them and they kind of helped us kind of start to grow again. But again, we kept on hitting the ceiling um, where we couldn't get above 1.8 million. Um, and, and part of it is that we were churning out pretty heavy, but we also just couldn't seem to break through it. And so that was when really through some of the influence of Science Incorporated, they said, hey, you you don't have the makings of a billion dollar business as it stands right now um, based on the business model that you've chosen for the service that you have. So you need to um, break it in order to achieve this billion-dollar company, because that's really the only thing that any of the investors on my cap table who are later stage, like Science um, or Sovereign's Capital or even you, they really want that scenario of, you know, they need to see a billion-dollar outcome. Um, and uh, so we just started rapidly breaking it and trying new things, much to the frustration of my team, because um, they, they're like, hey, we got a thing that works. we got customers who are paying us that like us, and we're just ruining it for them in pursuit of something that we don't even know if we can achieve. Um, but for, and from my standpoint, I'm like, but we've, the model that we've created, we've committed that we're going after a billion dollar exit for these investors. So I felt kind of caught in between those two things. Um, and eventually we kind of got to the point where that tension, I'd say we tried enough things that we're like, we couldn't seem to find the billion dollar things. So we kind of eventually got to a spot of just accepting that this business is a real business that can actually generate money. And if we managed our costs could generate profit, but it's not going to be the outcome that maybe our investors had hoped for. And so that was when we decided that we're going to sell the company. Um, so I don't know if you want to fill in any gaps in that. We can talk about the sale process after that if you want. Well, I remember, I mean, do you remember the conversation that we had right about the time that you were having that realization and you were really just, I, I think it was in our conference room, but we were kind of spitballing, you know, the differences between, I mean, you were using a dinosaur analogy, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Of, uh, you know, what you had learned and, and that most people don't have, you know, this, this billion dollar business. They do not. Yeah. And you want me to do the analogy? Yeah, yeah do it. So remember Kinder eggs? The, uh, they're like a little toy that you get at the grocery store and it's a chocolate egg and inside is a toy dinosaur. Mm-hmm. And so, um, Obviously, we're all hoping for one dinosaur. What, what dinosaur are we hoping for when we open that chocolate? T-Rex. Egg? It's a T-Rex, right? But the problem is that you have to buy the egg before you actually know what's inside, right? So you buy it and you pop it open. If it's a T-Rex, you're super happy. 
Um, but if it's a triceratops, you're like, oh, oh well, I guess I got a, tri- a triceratops. What am I going to do? Um, so VCs are the kid buying the egg, right? And so they buy it at a seed stage. They're like, we don't know what's going to be, but we're hoping it's going to be a T-Rex. And a T-Rex is a billion-dollar company. Um, so they bought they bought shares of Cloudwell, and now they looked inside, and we opened it up, and it was it was a let's call it a, not even a Velociraptor. Well, it was a, it was a Triceratops, right? It was a business that can make two million dollars a year. And probably you could spend less than a half million dollars a year in costs to generate that. So it's a business, right? Um, but it was not, it's never going to become that thing. So what do you do when you're holding that Triceratops? Um, you have a couple options. You can just say, oh, well, and then go and try again, which is eventually what our investors did. Um, or you can try to melt it down using a magnifying glass and melt it and shape it into the shape of a T-Rex and maybe you can force it to become that. And that's what we tried to do, and it kind of hurt the thing we had <laughs> and really dissatisfied it. it still was not a T-Rex at the end of the day. Um, that was kind of the analogy that I kind of finally concluded to. Um, so eventually, it was really through. We actually raised another. We had a round committed to extend the trial and error of trying to force this thing to be a billion-dollar company. And so we had commitment from all of our cap table um, to follow on for, I think it was a million and a half. And... Everyone, because science had been really close to us, um, everyone was looking to them for their expertise. So I flew out um, James, who is uh, a principal there, um, who now I think he just got promoted. He's fantastic. He came up and stood up and said, this is what I think about Cloudwell. These are the opportunities. These are the risks. And everyone's loving it. And so everyone kind of looks to science and says, well, are you going to invest? And they said, no. After flying out and giving their perspective, they said, we're not going to invest. And I was infuriated. Um, and I'm like, why? And they're like, we have better opportunities for billion-dollar companies elsewhere, and we don't think this is going to be a billion-dollar company, so no. And the entire round fell apart because everyone really looked at them. And so there are a couple lessons on that. One, I think that they were actually thinking the clearest out of everybody. Um, and, and I appreciate that they did that, and they had the the guts to say no. Um, but then, <laughs> I guess, uh, two, you have to be really careful when you're bringing on an incubator or someone with a lot of clout like that because essentially, at the point of should we continue or not, everyone looked at Mike Jones, who led science, and they didn't look at me. And I had, I had essentially handed over my clout to him by having him as a board observer. And I didn't realize, because he was so close to the business, that his and he had so much more context than me, his voice had more weight than I did. Um, and that was a new dynamic that I didn't realize that it happened until it had happened. Um, and so I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I'm actually happy with the outcome. But... It's a reality that I think I wasn't really aware with, uh, aware of when I started with them. Um, so in, in short, to sum it up, we then started a sale process. We had a couple retailers that we've been working with, um, Nordstrom, Stitch Fix, Macy's, Levi's. And we kind of like, we kind of said, hey, we're going to sell the company. Are you interested? A couple people said bit and said yes. Um, but it really, uh, we started the process with them, but it seemed like a long shot. Um, and then with Colin and Aaron Flynn, uh, Aaron was my co-founder. Um, Colin uh, is her husband. Um, he raised private equity money and put in an offer um, to say like, hey, I've raised this money. I can buy this. And it, was, it was not a really great offer, as you will recall, but it was the best offer we had. And so we tried to kind of run a parallel process. But eventually, once Stitch Fix backed out, that was kind of the nail in the coffin. And so we ended up going ahead and accepting that offer, um, which gave the users a home, gave the business a home, gave a little bit of cash to people who invested in that final round. I think they all doubled up, but everybody else kind of took a bath. Um, and then, uh, but it kind of let the company persist and gave me a gold star 
of an E for exit, um, despite the fact that it, from an economic standpoint, I would say it, it failed to give the returns that we a venture company should give. Um, so it's kind of like a, from a career standpoint, I called it a base hit. From an economic standpoint, I'd say it was a strikeout. Um, it's kind of a hard thing to, to figure out what was this thing. It's not a total failure, but it definitely wasn't a success either. But I can tell just by talking to you, the fact that you went through the entire process and stayed with the process. And at the end of the day, you know, what other, what other choice was there? And, you know, you get this gold star, you feel something inside. And I certainly can't speak for all the other investors, but we're still talking. So, and I remember that actually, it's important to call out. I remember driving back, I think it was from a meeting with Queen City. This is once we had, I think we'd closed. You gave me a call and I remember being like, oh, hey, what's up, Brad? And you said, uh, so what are we doing next? I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you know, like that was the first one. What, what's next? And I, you, that signaled to me that you're playing long-term games with entrepreneurs. You're not in it for just a one deal or one thing. And you didn't optimize in the process of, as an investor, you never optimized for the short term. You were always in the long term, like, Hey, I'm investing in entrepreneurs for life. Um, and that was really that specifically that interaction was really special to me. And cause I had a lot of investors who were um, a little bit more short-term focused who really beat me up through that process. And some of them were really nasty. Um, and I don't know, that was, I, you won a lot of my loyalty through that process. Uh, we will give you a hundred grand to do almost anything you want. So we, we love maintaining the relationship, but you bring up a good point. Um, not that we are not the right investor for everyone either. And you've already mentioned um, angels, accelerators, private equity fund, VCs, and of course there's other out there. Um, what do you, I mean, what would you tell other entrepreneurs uh, as far as a learning standpoint um, you know, the differences uh, between the investors and how, how can you help them decipher that to understand it's more than just, you know, you can get a bunch of people that could write the $100,000 check or whatever, but their opinions on what success looks like or what they ex- expect you to do is totally different. Yeah. You have to look at the motivations of the investor, right? And not just motivations from an economic standpoint, um, but also motivations personally, because the more a percent of your cap table they take up, the more their motivations will become your motivations. Um, and, and so I'd say that really comes down to it. So the, the big difference in motivations is obviously, is this their money or is this their investor's money? Um, it, it, that's a huge difference in terms of the need for return. Um, so with you know, Queen City Angels, it's their money. Um, and so because of that, they're okay with a 3X. You know, they're okay with, you know, three times their money. It's fantastic. You buy them a new boat, buy them a new deck, Right. Um, but for you, a 3X would actually be a loss for you because um, you have LPs. You're going to invest in 10 companies, nine of whom are going to fail. So that one has to return the entire fund. In order to do that, it needs to be 100X, right? And so it, I think that knowing that that your voice is going to always going to be toward more growth, right? Queens of the Angels uh, is going to be more towards more profit because they can get a 3X through a profitable company, but you can't get 100X through a profitable company. So knowing that difference, I think, is a big thing. And you then have to align of what do you want as the founder and say, like, do I do I want to choose growth no matter what? Am I going after a jet? <laughs> right. Or am I OK with like a, a business that uh, harmonizes with my lifestyle desires or even just like the, the life that I envision? And I think uh, too often we default to growth has to be the way or hyper growth has to be the way. Um, that's not always the case. 
No, and I think it could be hybrids and crossovers and, um, you know, I think inside of a, an ecosystem, our current ecosystem, I think is still at the beginning of, you know, its ultimate growth stage. And I think a lot of the entrepreneurs and then a lot of the um, investors, you're just kind of lumped into those two camps. And and so, you know, what happens is you get disconnected between, hey, you should you should look at this startup. It's really great. And, and it's like, it is, but it's not, not for me. Or, hey, you should go talk to their, this investor. They're, they're really great. Well, they are, but not for you. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you know, when, when you don't, at least locally, we don't have a ton of choice. Uh, there's not a ton of investors. There's not a ton of startups. Um, that's, that's tough at, at times. Yeah. So you left Cladwell's, boom, sold that on to um, new things. What did you do after? Um, we, I, I took, you know, the, the sale process was grueling. Um, I, I'd never been through anything like that. And a lot of it was that I, I felt kind of like a middleman between um, a handful of my investors and then uh, Colin, who was kind of running on the sale on the buy side. And I felt like I was kind of jumping in between. Um, and the truth is that from a representative standpoint, the investors owned more than I did at that point. So looking at their wishes, uh, it, it, it was kind of a strange conflict. And I don't love conflict as a person. Um, I also don't love detail as a person. <laughs> um, I, I know all this. Right, right. And so it's like, uh, essentially, detailed conflict is what a, a buying process is. The sale, the selling a company is detailed conflict. And so it was kind of the perfect storm for what I hate, as opposed to raising money, which is not detailed, uh, finding commonalities with people. And it's the joy ride going up. I love raising money. But man, selling was tough for me. And I think I'll do a better time. I'll do a better job next time. Um, it was also my first time. And the first time for everything's hard. Um, but so after that, um, I took off two months. Um, and we were financially in the spot that we could to take off some time. So my son, who's here with me, Everett, um, he and I wakeboarded two or three times a week up at Wake Nation in Fairfield. And we you know, went on vacation. And we just kind of like, I just was. Um, and really did a lot of journaling, went to my therapist, David Barr in uh, Norwood, who's great, um, and just kind of really reflected. And it was a really, it was a helpful time. I'm glad I did it. It wasn't that relaxing, um, but it was kind of like decompression. Um, and so then I got, I figured, I was like, I got to make some money. Um, so I just, I made a video um, on YouTube that's called 70 Lessons Learned in Seven Years as an Entrepreneur. And so I, I listed out 70 lessons that I felt like I'd learned through the process. Um, pretty raw just kind of like shared it out there. Um, and it was pretty beautiful. That turned into now over 300 meetings in the past year with founders. Um, and it's just kind of continued people find it. And so it's, you know, it's only got a couple thousand views, but it's a very, only a very concentrated person's going to watch two hours of content from a founder being like raw about that. Um, but that turned into a lot of opportunities to help people with growth. Um, I've helped Eight companies, and I'm in the middle with two, but eight companies I've tried to help them raise institutional rounds the past year. Um, we have a close rate of 75%. So 75% of the companies I helped raise their first institutional round, and that was pretty fun. So I coached them through that process. Um, and so I, I, I honestly just kind of was like, I, I would say to any founder who's listening, I was blown away at seven years ago when I started Gladwell. Um, I was making base salary of $50,000 a year and a decent bonus because I was working for a hedge fund. So most of my upside was, but still was not even in six figure range um, seven years ago. Started this company, went to zero, made nothing for the first two years, slowly kind of came up and uh, 
came out seven years later. I'm like, what are the market values in here? And I'm blown away. Like the amount of money I've, I've made double the salary I was making at Cloudwell, which is actually a decent salary at the time on maybe 15 hours a week. Um, and, and I can look at it and say that was worth it for those people because I've really been helpful to people. And like, I would just say to any founder out there, you have no idea. You, you see the valuation of your company, you see your revenue, but you, what you don't see is you don't see your market value rising at an incredibly fast rate because of all the pain you're going through. And so pretty much as long as you're not immoral, you are going to win, right? As long as you don't do anything bad, <laughs> like you, you'll come out either with a really high uh, market rate um, that you're super helpful to people, or you'll come out with an exit. Either way, like it, it's you really can't lose. Um, and so then I did that for six months and then um, started talking with some folks about uh, starting a new company. And so Chris Ridenauer and I um, and Nikki Ridenauer, we started Jump Docs back in June. So how's that going or where's that at or what do you want to say about that? Oh, it's that? so different. <laughs> it's completely different. Um, so it was part of the experience of what we had from uh, that you saw um, when I first went to you. My, um, my legal stack in terms of the documents that I had with my employees as well as my financial documents were a mess, a total mess. And um, I thought that was just me. Um, but, you know, I had 40 people on my cap table all in convertible notes with a lot of different terms. Um, I didn't have all my IP assignment agreements signed with employees. So it was a big mess of legal risk, so much so that um, we actually were going to be offered a term sheet. They said, can we look at your, we want to look at your data room. They saw the cap table and just the math of that. And they said, if you hadn't just shown me that, uh, you would have a term sheet for a million and a half right now. But because of that, we're walking away. We will not work with you. And um, it was super painful. So Fast forward six months ago, we said, okay, I want to solve that problem for founders because in these 300 meetings I've had in the past year with founders, that is the majority of the case. Like most people who are founders have that circumstance. And I bet you there's a psychological reason for that, that, you know, we, we tend to be optimistic and say, you know what, I'll deal with that later. But the problem is that when later comes, it actually hurts you. Um, so we said, hey, could we figure out a way to make startups very affordably be able to work with a high quality lawyer? And get all their shit together so that on the day when they're time to raise money, they're in that top 5%. People are like, holy cow, you have everything together. I know you're a legitimate founder that I can trust and invest in. And so we've automated, we partnered with Thompson Hine. Um, I guess we piloted with Thompson Hine. We've automated kind of their process where essentially you can get the Thompson Hine documents for a fraction of the cost um, and fill out forms. And then they actually can take it across the finish line and then help you with anything that's bespoke to you. So it's a way to get access to a tier one lawyer at a fraction of the cost. Um, so it's going pretty well. We're doing, I mean, we've got, uh, you know, we've essentially, we're doing maybe three or four companies uh, a week right now. Um, we we spent three months building the product and then launched. <laughs> Very different than the Cloudwell story. And then we've just been cranking, like adding more companies on. And now we're adding on more law firms. Um, and we found that law firms the the right way for us to kind of go to market. So we essentially are white labeling for law firms. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. Uh, you know, um, VCs, you know, we have restrictions because of our LPs and certain things and certain structures that, you know, we can invest in or there's certain tax advantages that we sort of pitch to our LPs that that knowledge base doesn't always come back to, to the entrepreneurs. And if you want to raise money, having your doc structure and data room together, because you should always be raising um, when someone says, well, hey, that's super interesting what you're doing. Let me, see, let me, let me look in your, your data room. 
And to not be prepared for that opportunistic time seems like a miss. So uh, I love what you're doing. Uh, hopefully this goes well. And, you know, I know you and I are going to talk about ways to work together. So mm-hmm. here in the last one to, to four minutes, um, let's just switch gears and we'll close it on some personal stuff. Yeah. So uh, you and I are, are both dads. Uh, we've bonded over that uh, quite a bit. And, you know, just the, the trials and tribulations that, that that brings and the, and the glory and, and the love and all that. But what about being an entrepreneur? Do you, do you think is similar to um, being a dad? Hmm. I mean, you're a problem solver, right? You're creating a culture. I mean, I, I think generally business books are the best parenting books um, just because they actually talk about the things that really matter around like uh, creating a culture that people are happy to be there. Um, or, you know, having a cadence that creates order and not chaos. Um, so I, I feel like it's the same skill set. I feel like teaching, coaching, fatherhood, leading, they're all the same skill set, right? It's just essentially you're trying to create a world where people can thrive. Um, and so I, I love that. I also think that just the general idea, of, I think a good life is one where you take on more responsibility. And the more you take on, the more you'll thrive in the long term. And I think as millennials, we all, and I even personally, I want to flee responsibility, but I found that I've never regretted taking it on. And so that's true for a company. That's true for a marriage. That's true for a family. Like committing and sticking to it, I think is really, really satisfying. Blake, I think that's awesome. So glad to talk to you today and I wish you a ton of luck. Thanks. Thanks for having me. See you. Thank you for listening to The Aggregate, hosted by Kinetic Ventures. Kinetic Ventures is an early-stage VC that is disrupting venture capital by replacing the pitch with an automated, data-driven approach. What's the benefit? A completely unbiased investment process that allows funders to spend more time building their business. To learn more about Kinetic or apply for funding, please visit us at www.kinetic.ventures.